2: I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, Lucky
3: Day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's <laughs> <a good> question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner program.
1: Good morning, Tom. How you
0: doing?
3: Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: Stay tuned, cause it's on now. The Tom Sumner program.
2: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Hey there.
2: I'm Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Might surprise you to be hearing from me some smoke show Midwestern governor nobody heard about till a couple weeks ago. But governors are kind of having a moment right now. And while other govs get cool nicknames like Daddy Cuomo and Gavin Choke-Me-King Newsome... Trump refers to me as that woman from Michigan, but I'm not offended, because I am proud to be from Michigan, and that woman is also what Trump calls his wife, <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. and yeah, yeah, I'm nursing all the bats, because even though most frickin' governors are laying down restrictions because of the virus, mine are somehow too far. now. You may have heard about the protesters that gathered in the streets of our capital for Ted and cosplay last week. Look people, it's live free or die, not live free and die. And Trump advisor Stephen Moore is comparing these protesters to Rosa Parks. Yeah, if Rosa Parks was fighting for her right to get hit by a bus. Sorry, that's a little bats talking. But. I support all Americans and Michiganders' freedom of speech. So, if you got to protest, here are some tips on how to do it safely. Number one, stay home. I promise you can call me a bitch from the safety of your couch. It's called Twitter. So, if you must head outside, maintain proper social distancing. That means six feet apart at all times. So, if the tip of your AK-47 can touch the tip of your buddy's AK, back up. And please... Wear face masks, but not a joker mask. And, and not a clown mask, and abs- absolutely no masks that come with a hood. Now, like you, I have heard the rumors that I'm on the short list to be Joe Biden's vice president, the VP's beep. Because if it's going to be a woman, it might as well be that woman. But my sole priority is my home state, because we're not out of the woods. We never will be. We live in Michigan. And to anyone that stands in the way of the health and safety of my constituents, I'll remind you, the Michigan is a mitten, right? And this, this is where I live. Oh, dang it, they're throwing dog crap at my door. Knock it off. I'll throw it back. I did it last time too. You know I
0: will.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the uh, best-selling author of Bobby Kennedy. He was uh, on the show when that book came out, and uh, he returns now with a new book called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. He is Larry Ty. Larry, welcome back to the show.
4: Welcome to uh, say joy to be back with you, Tom. Um,
3: this is... Uh, I. I it was funny when we talked before um, the The subject of uh, Donald Trump came up because of Roy Cohn and his connection to Joe McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy's connection to Joe McCarthy and um, I, I I find it kind of interesting in this new book that you draw a line through American demagogues uh, characterizing Joe McCarthy as uh sort of the gold standard of uh, demagoguery uh... but um, up to and through donald trump um, why is it important to go back and and uh, go through these recently released documents and and to learn more about joe mccarthy
4: so that's a good question and that's a polite way of asking why do we need the hundred and first biography of joe mccarthy and the answer and, is and
3: 500 pages worth, Larry.
4: <laughs> and even more than 500, 600 pages worth. Yeah. And so the answer is that um, I never would have thought that we needed that and in fact the day before the 2016 election I had signed up to write a biography of Barack Obama and the day after the election I realized that we won't know Obama's legacy until the end of the era of Trump and that the dark story and the one that would have seemed too dark to revisit of Joe McCarthy now suddenly took on a resonance. It takes on a resonance because I think that Donald Trump used Joe McCarthy's playbook not just to get into office but to govern. And because I think that we have to go back to really understand Trump and even understand McCarthy, we have to look at this uniquely American strain of a love affair with bullies that goes back to. Uh, our earliest days with people like Huey Long and the race-baiting, uh, Jew-baiting uh, radio priest from your state of Michigan, Father Coughlin, through John McCarthy to George Wallace and now Donald Trump. And Joe McCarthy wasn't the first of those demagogues, but he was the archetype. So to understand all of this, we need a new biography, I think and one that looks at this whole long line but we need a new biography more especially because never before in the seventy years of biographies we've had on joe mccarthy has anyone had access to mccarthy's personal and professional papers an enormous stash of them to his medical and military records and to the nine thousand pages of transcripts of his closed-door hearing and without all of that you couldn't really see who joe mccarthy was and why his message is so resonant today?
3: And, and well, this this is a little parenthetical, and we'll get back to Joe McCarthy in a moment. but uh, you've written books about uh, Bobby Kennedy, Satchel, and Superman. Um, and, and I can't help wondering if uh, if you're following your own personal interests. <laughs> in what you decide so, to write about. <laughs> so that is what every
4: that every biographer or author tells who tells you they're doing it for some great lofty reason um, <laughs> is telling a bit of a fib. And we all do the things that we're personally interested in. On the other hand, Bobby Kennedy was a passion of mine, and that's an uplifting experience. The idea of taking on Joe McCarthy, you've got to do because you're interested, but more because um, that person and in this case this dark character is a lens into an important era in american history and i've always been fascinated by the era that i was born into the nineteen fifties and why it was that we became as consumed as we did by the red scare and by the hunt for communists not just overseas which made sense but communists in our own state department and white house and all the other places joe mccarthy was pointing his finger so, yes, it was because I was selfishly interested. Yes, it was because I thought it was a story that resonates. And yes, because I thought that it was a natural follow-up to Bobby Kennedy. The one who really got me intrigued about Joe McCarthy was a woman named Ethel Kennedy, Bobby's widow. Yeah. And she said to me, this is an iconic figure. The, at one point after Bobby died, Ethel Kennedy was the single most popular woman In America and she said to me that Joe McCarthy might have been a monster to much of America but to her and to Bobby he was just plain good fun and the thought of Joe McCarthy and good fun seemed like a disconnect that I wanted to try to understand better
3: Um, how is doing a story about someone like Bobby Kennedy uh, who you called a uh, liberal icon and um, uh, Joe McCarthy, who almost cartoon-like has been uh, uh, villainized in a way that that most demagogues aren't. Um, how does that compare to Superman?
4: Uh, so it's a uh, it's an entire change of mindset and of approach to researching, and yet it isn't. Superman was interesting to me as a character because I thought he was a way of understanding why we embrace the heroes that we do in America. What longer-lasting hero have we had throughout our history than the red, white, and blue Superman? And if he was the hero, Joe McCarthy is the ultimate American antihero. He's the bad guy to Superman's good guy. And I think that both... Were intriguing characters that were larger than life. One happens not to have been real life and the other was too much real life, but they were both intriguing. And I think that going back and forth between characters who are uplifting and characters who are distressing is also sort of a fun way of keeping balance in your own work life.
3: Interesting. Um, So there wasn't a lot of dirt to dig up on Superman?
4: Uh, Not a whole lot of dirt. (laughs) A lot of dirt in the characters around him because there were a lot of not only villains in the Superman story, but villains in the story of the people who brought Superman to life. Uh, But Superman himself was a hero, and Joe McCarthy has heroic aspects to his personality, but they are quite outweighed outweighed by all the dark sides there was the charming side the side that made wisconsin elect him overwhelmingly twice as their senator and the side that made joe mccarthy and your listeners might not be aware of this joe mccarthy by nineteen fifty four was the second most popular political figure in america he was the most controversial but he also had a full one in two a full fifty percent of americans thinking he was a great guy doing a great job. And the only one in America, other than maybe Superman, who was more popular then, was Dwight Eisenhower, our president.
3: Well, yeah, everybody liked Ike.
4: Everybody, everybody <laughs> did like Ike. Everybody <laughs> but Joe McCarthy. Yeah.
3: yeah. But, but was, that, was that a true dislike, uh, Larry, or, or was that a political dislike? Was it to his advantage to pick someone as, as popular as Ike? Good question, and the answer is yes to both. He
4: definitely politically disliked him because Eisenhower went after McCarthy in quiet ways and then during the Army McCarthy hearings in not-so-quiet ways. On the other hand, I think that the two of them were different enough. One was this grandfatherly, totally even-keeled, politically moderate figure who looked like he was falling asleep half the time or out on the golf course, but in fact with a quiet hand was guiding the country. The other, instead of a quiet hand, was a pointing finger. He was the guy who never did anything in a moderate way and temperamentally they were so different that there was no way they could ever like one another.
3: I I think one of the uh, interesting things that, that comes up in both books was uh Bobby's uh, Bobby Kennedy's uh connection to Joe McCarthy and you mentioned uh Ethel and and the relationship that they had personally as as uh friends and and there's a, there's a scene you um you describe in the book of uh uh one of Bobby Kennedy's uh, children sitting in Joe McCarthy's lap and um, uh, so that, Yeah, go ahead. That
4: was That was Bobby and Ethel's oldest child, who was then a toddler, and her name was Kathleen. Her name is Kathleen, and basically Ethel was talking about how McCarthy fell in love with her and she seemingly with him, and it was such an extraordinary relationship that Ethel's recollection, when I interviewed her several years ago for the Bobby book, was that they liked McCarthy enough that they named him as Kathleen's godfather, And what, in fact, is true, that's not true, it turns out, as Kathleen was the first one to point out, the last thing in the world Kathleen wanted to be, and it turns out she really wasn't, was Joe McCarthy's goddaughter. On the other hand, it had been repeated so often by the press that Ethel, in her old age, started to believe it as well and repeated it to me. And when I told Kathleen about it and said, I'm going to go with this because your mom says it, she says, no, Here's the proof. And I think that the. So I talked about it as being a rumor, but that was a sign of how close they were. And the yeah, idea of Larry, Larry, have Larry,
3: I have to put sure. a comma here. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we need to take a sure. short break. Please stick around because I want to talk some more. My guest is Great. Larry Ty. We'll be right back.
1: Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tom Sumner program celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. In just a little while, you folks are going to have the pleasure. Not only hearing the songs of the star of the program and all, but you're also going to have the pleasure of hearing and watching and seeing in person the gentlemen and ladies who have been supplying the fine music behind the curtain this evening. (laughs) It's a wonderful orchestra. i love to hear them play. But while you would possibly never even consider counting how many pieces there are in the band, It so happens there are about, I think, 26, 27 members of the orchestra, the stage orchestra here. The only thing is they used to play in Hollywood. And when they were there in Hollywood, California, there were a 65-piece orchestra. And when they were hired by the International Hotel to come here and play, they all got on on the bus All 65 of them with their instruments and everything and headed out for Las Vegas. (laughs) The only thing was, when they crossed the Nevada state line, they had fruit inspection, and this is all left. Here are some most happy fellas, the four lads for Ford. Standing on the corner, watching all the Fords go by. The Thunderbird's kissing cousin Get in a fort You're to try So don't be standing on the corner Watching all the forts Watching all the
0: forts Be the guy who's going port. This is Jill Stein and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: Hey, welcome back everybody. Uh, my guest this hour is... Uh, best-selling author and award-winning journalist Larry Ty. He has a new book called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, and he joins me by phone. Larry, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for having me back. Just before the break, we were uh, just starting to touch on the two sides of uh, Joe McCarthy, sort of the iconic version that that coined the phrase McCarthyism and has all the the baggage and connotation that McCarthyism and uh, the Red Scare carries with it, um, but also the personal side, as as evidenced by uh, Bobby and Ethel Kennedy and their, their oldest daughter Kathleen. Um, and it reminded me of something, and I want to talk about this connection between Joe McCarthy and, and Donald Trump, something that Ben Carson said about Donald Trump after the uh, presidential primary in 2016. He said that, uh, you know, he'd faced him on the debate stage and he'd talked with him in private. And he said, the Donald Trump that I met in private is a different person than the one I saw on stage. Um, and, and I find that an interesting parallel. So it's a fascinating parallel. Um, both, both
4: Trump and McCarthy's critics call them narcissistic, bullying personalities and both of them have friends who say that's absolutely not who we see. Um, I can only speak to, I've never met Donald Trump, and I don't know what he's like offstage. I can only speak to what McCarthy was like offstage. And what he was like is that he could grill you and berate you over the course of a long congressional hearing in the morning or the afternoon, and then in the evening he'd invite you for a drink. Because he thought it was all a game and that you understood the rules of the game and that in public, you may look like your enemies, but that didn't mean you couldn't laugh and drink and enjoy one another. And that was an interesting attitude that I think reflected two things. One was his upbeat personality and the fact that he really was a fun guy. And the other is that he was clueless to the devastating effect that the grilling and the targeting had on his victims and it wasn't a game to them and people lost their jobs they lost their sense of community embrace and some of them actually lost their lives because they were so devastated by having been ruined by joe mccarthy so whatever there is in terms of this second half of these personalities we as citizens of wisconsin or michigan or america have to only focus on the part that we can see, and that is what somebody does on the public stage
3: and and it's interesting because his particular uh, uh, cause, if you will was was going after communists rooted in the government, and then it expanded beyond that to Hollywood and uh, uh, the army, of course, the famous uh, McCarthy army hearings and it um what is interesting about that is it didn't start with mccarthy but he seemed to have have taken that that fear that paranoia to a whole new level in america
4: so he did he absolutely didn't start the red scare he didn't start the hunt for communists in hollywood or anywhere else that was the house on american activities committee years before mccarthy got on the scene but mccarthy understood something that none of the earlier people had which is why the movement is called mccarthyism not anybody else's name and what he understood was instead of just pointing and saying there are traitors over there or we think there are spies he named the names of the spies and he counted the numbers of them and so when he stood up in his first famous speech and waved a piece of paper in the air and said i have in my hand A list of 205 people at the State Department that are working with the Soviet Union. The fact was he didn't have that in his hand. The fact was his numbers and his names were bad and were stale and were misdirected. And the fact was that all the 24 carrot spies had been rooted out long before Joe McCarthy came on the scene. But that didn't matter. He was a showman. And Reporters like you and me back then thought he's a front-page story, and so they went along with him, they printed his charges, they printed the responses the next day on page 24 on his page one story from the day before, and he got away with it for four and a half long years.
3: And you mention as as one of those 24-carat spies, Alger Hiss. Right. So
4: Alger Hiss was a guy at the State Department who, to this day, liberals and conservatives still debate about whether he was a spy. But back then, he was assumed to be a spy, and he was one of the 24 carat ones. The ultimate spy, the uber-spy, was the atomic spy Julius Rosenberg, who went to the electric chair for passing on secrets about our atomic program to the Soviet Union. And Joe McCarthy spent his whole career dreaming that he'd come up with another, with another Alger Hiss or Julius Rosenberg, and he spent his whole career looking more like he couldn't find a spy if he were dropped into the middle of Red Square. <laughs>
3: that he
4: really didn't have an easy time of it.
3: Um, it it's it, the Alger Hiss one is interesting to me because I had an author on the on the show a couple of years ago who had written a book that um, makes the claim that that not only was Alger Hiss not guilty, but that he was framed and primarily by Richard Nixon.
4: So he was definitely attacked by Richard Nixon. If you think he was innocent, you would say he was framed by Richard Nixon. I don't want to, because I don't know enough about it, get into the debate over Alger Hiss. All I know is that McCarthy came along later and capitalized on the antipathy to Hiss, and McCarthy came along later. And one of the people who said he was irresponsible and we shouldn't trust his names or numbers was none other than Richard Nixon. And anybody who can make Richard Nixon look reasonable on these issues, you understand how far out on a limb Joe McCarthy was.
3: <laughs> and and um, and apparently, uh, according to this uh, this book on Alger Hiss, um, it it. It was the Alger Hiss case that catapulted Nixon to national prominence. What did it for uh, Joe McCarthy?
4: What did it for him was no particular case, because none of his cases ever stood up. What did it for him was that speech in February 1950, on the famous day where all Republicans around the country like to gather and hear speeches, which is the birthday of Abraham Lincoln, the great Republican president, Joe McCarthy was giving a speech um, which was a sign of his level of prominence. He wasn't invited to New York. He wasn't invited to Detroit or Boston or San Francisco. He was invited to Wheeling, West Virginia. <laughs> he was a backbench senator who looked like he was on his way to losing his reelection battle. And he goes to Wheeling. He waves around the papers saying he's got a list of 205 communists. Reporters never see the list, but they play it up big time, and Joe McCarthy never turned back.
3: And then it, it uh, in, in some ways, it seems like, uh, like, like his campaign to root out communists um, as it made him more popular, or better known, we'll say, um, became kind of a runaway train.
4: It did become a runaway train. And what's interesting is that speech that I mentioned in Wheeling, when he went there that night, he brought his briefcase with him, and in his briefcase was two speeches and he wasn't sure till the last minute which one he was going to give. One was a speech on national housing policy that he actually knew something about. Had he given that snoozer of a speech on housing, 70 years later you and I wouldn't be here talking about him. But instead he pulled out the second speech, the barn burner on red hunting, and that's the speech that he gave, that's the speech that set that runaway train in motion, and Once he got the spotlight, he would do anything until the rest of his life, for the rest of his life, to keep the spotlight on him, which meant elevating his level of charges, elevating his embellishment, and never being able to really prove much of anything.
3: How much of the the Red Scare was fueled in America by fear of the bomb? A huge amount. So
4: there was fear of the bomb. There was fear about our giving away the secrets of the bomb to this evil Soviet empire. And the Soviet threat was real. They had real guns. They had real antagonism to America. But this was taking that threat and somehow saying on the home front, we were at huge risk. And we had had such strict loyalty programs put in place over the five years before Joe McCarthy came onto the scene, that whether there was a risk after World War II is a question that is legitimate to ask. Whether there was the kind of risk that Joe McCarthy was talking about is not so legitimate. He was perfectly tuned to play on the fears of the bomb and the fears of the Soviet Empire and to light a match to something that was ready to burn.
3: And where does Roy Cohn come into this? Because he was already a red hunter.
4: He was. Roy Cohn had, to his credit, um, the prosecution. He was part of the team that prosecuted the Rosenbergs. He was known for being a brilliant young lawyer. And he was arrogant as heck and came in when Joe McCarthy took over the chairmanship of this famous permanent subcommittee On investigations at the beginning of 1953, he needed. He was now, the his party was in the majority. He was now the chairman of the subcommittee, and he needed a chief of staff. And in the end, it came down to two people. One was the arrogant, brilliant lawyer Roy Cohn, who's the guy he chose, and the other was a smart young lawyer named Bobby Kennedy, who, if he had picked Bobby Kennedy, we can only speculate how his career would have been different, and again, whether we'd be talking about him 70 years later. But he picked Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn reinforced every bad instinct that Joe McCarthy had for shooting from the hip. And half a century later, Roy Cohn turns up again. He's a power broker by this time, a fixer in New York, again, a smart, not-so-young lawyer. And he turns up again as the tutor, or a real estate magnate named Donald Trump.
3: And and how did that happen? Because um, even though he may have talked about it, it it's, it's not really like Donald Trump started out his career with presidential aspirations.
4: Yes, so Donald Trump didn't. Um, and in those days when Roy Cohn was tutoring him, it wasn't tutoring him to be a politician. It was tutoring him to get along and thrive in a cutthroat world of real estate and high-stakes business in New York. And Roy Cohn taught him, passed on all the Joe McCarthy lessons. A Lesson number one being that when you are attacked, you aim a wrecking ball at your assailant. Lesson number two, when one manufactured enemy is exposed as hollow, you lob a fresh bombshell. Lesson number three: When the news is bad, blame the newsmen. Those were all lessons that McCarthy had fine-tuned, and they were all lessons that served Trump well in his real estate magnet role, and even better when he decided to run for president.
3: And how did Roy Cohn? Um, I mean, we've seen how, how what happened with Bobby Kennedy beyond his uh, his his working for. Joe McCarthy, but how did Roy Cohn avoid the fallout from McCarthy's collapse?
4: So, Roy Cohn was brilliant at avoiding any negative consequences ever. And Roy Cohn left McCarthy at the end of the Army McCarthy hearings, but all the venom was uh, taken up by the lightning rod Joe McCarthy, and Roy Cohn. Was enough of a sidelight at that point that he just went off on his own and relaunched a legal career and another life. And Roy Cohn dodged that kind of bullet repeatedly in his career. When Bobby Kennedy, who hated Roy Cohn from the old Joe McCarthy days, when Bobby Kennedy became Attorney General under his brother John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy tried to go after Roy Cohn and get him thrown out as a lawyer in New York and indicted. He was perpetually coming close to or actually coming under indictment or investigation, but every time he somehow managed to come out stronger, and that was exactly the kind of lesson on how to escape the consequences of bad behavior that Joe McCarthy had passed to Roy and that Roy passed to Donald Trump.
3: And and Joe had that Uh, Joe McCarthy had that ability innately and passed that on to Roy Cohn because I I almost had the impression that, that it was the other way around.
4: So both of them I think had it innately but while Roy Cohn was probably smarter than McCarthy, McCarthy was savvier and he was the boss and the responsibility has to fall on him. We never know what went on precisely behind closed doors But my sense is that while Roy encouraged every bit of bad behavior in Joe, it was McCarthy who set him off and let him do his damage.
3: Did you get the sense when you talk about Joe McCarthy in public versus in private that at the heart of it, um, it was his uh, insecurities and, and narcissism working to make him The kind of bully he was in public and and the kind of warm, gregarious friend in private, were the same things driving those two sides?
4: Yes. It was a hunger for power, and he didn't quite know what he wanted to do with it, but he just wanted it. It was an inability to see the effects of his actions, and it really was wanting to be liked, and he wanted people to vote for him, whether it was district attorney or circuit judge that he was running for, or whether it was senator, and maybe, if he hadn't fallen down during the Army McCarthy hearings, president. When Roy Cohn ran for his first office, it was as president of his law school class at Marquette University, and he set the pattern there for everything that would come later. He's running against a guy named Charlie Curran, a very good guy, and they agree that the gentlemanly thing to do was they would each vote for the other and then see where everything took them. And they did that in the first round. When it came out to be a tie, they ran in a face-off. And that face-off, the uh, Charlie Curran stayed the gentleman and voted for McCarthy, and McCarthy voted for McCarthy, and McCarthy won by exactly that margin. Afterwards, when Charlie Curran the confronted McCarthy and said, how could you do that? McCarthy said, well, I was out there telling people I was the best man for the job, and I believe that, and so you wouldn't want me to not vote for the best man. Classic Joe McCarthy opportunism, double dealing, and yet there's another twist to that story. When Curran's father died, Joe McCarthy borrowed a car, must have had to borrow the money for the gasoline, and drove to the funeral of charlie Kern's father and kern was so impressed by that that he forgave mccarthy for his bad behavior in the election and he like many people was charmed despite the ruthless side of joe mccarthy
3: and and the um and and in your book uh and and there's so much in the book and and i didn't mean to sound derogatory about the length of it um <laughs> But there's there's so much in there. Um, I, I, I'm not sure where all I want to try to get to. I, I definitely want to talk about Ike and how Ike reacted, because a lot of this was going on on his watch, and um, and and a lot of it was directed at him. And so his handling of it was um, sort of two-sided as well
4: so was everything about Joe McCarthy was two-sided because I think that he was just a bundle of contradictions we've talked about some of them the good guy the charming guy and the ruthless guy the guy who could um, on the one hand the take money from Texas oil tycoons to the point where they would call him the third senator from Texas And the guy who loved to go home to Wisconsin and wanted more than anything to be liked by his neighbors back home. He was a guy who was just torn by a million things. And because of that, some psychiatrists and psychologists that I talked to think he was a classic case of what is today known as bipolar disease and back then was known as being manic and depressive. He at times would be totally manic and at times would seem to be down and be distressed at the kinds of attacks that he was having to fend off himself.
3: And and you say that the uh, the stuff that was televised um, from the uh, Army-McCarthy hearings um, pale in comparison to, to some of the testimony that was taken behind closed doors.
4: It was. And the, so behind closed doors, it was bad in the Army-McCarthy hearings, but behind closed doors, we saw a side of Joe McCarthy that was never um, visible in public. He ceased even pretending to care about the rights of the accused. He just declared them guilty. He held one-man hearings, which was a violation of long-standing Senate tradition. When he wasn't there, his sophomoric staffers like Roy Cohn leapt in to badger witnesses on his behalf. We also saw something that I find fascinating, which is that instead of the, for most people, for most politicians, they'd want to be out in public berating their witnesses. Joe McCarthy, and they were more vile when they were out in public, Joe McCarthy, in fact, was more unhinged in these private hearings. He was unhinged because I think what he was doing was trying to test witnesses. And if they fought back and if they looked strong, they never made it to public hearings. But if they looked weak and caved into him, they were the perfect kinds of patsies he'd want to take out in front of the public. One last thing that I find a bit distressing but also a bit interesting about the private hearings. In the morning, Joe McCarthy, when he was sober, seemed pretty reasonable. In the afternoon, after he had had his famous lunch of a hamburger, a raw onion, and whiskey, he started getting more irritable. And I think we were seeing the effects of the drinking that would ultimately kill him. I also think, and I hate to get into this, but I also think we were seeing the effect of the hemorrhoids that he suffered. And after sitting there hour after hour and being sore, we were seeing him take out that by being sore to his witnesses
3: by by becoming the thing that was ailing him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um you, you know, I I I think I told you this uh the last time and I want to dig down on this a little bit if you can stick around for another segment Larry. Um Sure. My uh my parents uh worked in Washington at that time. Um my mother was a secretary for a senator from Kansas. My dad worked for a congressman from Michigan. Um, who was in fact on the Un American Activities Committee. And um, while they were dating, they used to meet for lunch with a, they'd just take a, a brown bag or a sandwich or something and uh, sit in the gallery and watch the Army McCarthy hearings.
4: Amazing. I love that yeah so we'll I, talk about that when we're back
3: yeah we are we are going to take a short break my guest is uh, larry ty he is a, an award-winning uh, journalist and best-selling author and uh, his new book is *Demagogue: The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy*. And we're going to talk some more about that in the uh, in the next segment. But if you're listening to us on WFOV, 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll talk some more about uh, Joe McCarthy and some other familiar names with author Larry Tai right after this.
0: alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila!
1: Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Lifebuoy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself.
3: A message from the CDC and the Ad Council.
2: In the interest of goodwill, the Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it but it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you. Could you be happy if your name This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Programme.
3: Hey, welcome back everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a new book about uh, Senator Joe McCarthy uh, called Demagogue. He is Larry Ty. Larry, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around and spending so much time with me. I, I'm fascinated by this topic.
4: Um, it's great to stick around with you and looking forward to more conversation.
3: Yeah, I mentioned before the break that uh, my parents met in, uh and dated, uh, they were staffers in, in Washington at the time of the Un-American Activities uh, Committee's activities. And, um, and and I remember, not often, but occasionally, my mother would talk about, uh, um, she would name drop, talk about people that, that she would see on the subway or around the halls of uh, the U.S. Senate or the, the U.S. Capitol. And... Um, in some of the bars and restaurants and Joe McCarthy was a name that she would mention often when she would get telling stories from her days in Washington and especially about his drinking and his behavior when he was drinking and the way he would treat bar staff and and so on Um, and you mentioned when we were talking in the last segment Larry about uh, about his drinking which eventually killed him Um, but what was the the real downfall for Joe McCarthy?
4: So we have speculated about this for years, for decades, and, the, um, and people tell wonderful stories like your mother did, and it had to be speculation because who really knew what he was doing? Nobody was there counting the drinks or looking at the course of his whole day or whole week or whole time in the Senate. Now we have something that, fills in a lot of those gaps. Um, I had show up in my driveway one day a box with thousands of pages of records that I had requested from Bethesda Naval Hospital, which is where McCarthy was treated from the time he got to the Senate and where he ultimately died. And those records, in extraordinary detail, go through everything that was going on with his health, including his rising consumption of alcohol. He was always a drinker, and I mentioned that behind closed doors at his hearings, you could see the effects of the whiskey or whiskies that he would have at lunch. But over time, that drinking increased to the point where it looked like he was having a quart a day of alcohol, and it was having an extraordinary effect on him. This was especially apparent after he was condemned at the end of 1954 by, the, by his fellow senators. And in the end, The coroner's report said that Joe McCarthy died of acute hepatitis, and that is what every reporter in America reported, and that simply isn't true. Joe McCarthy died of the effects of his drinking. He died with the DTs. He died of a spiked level of fever that was brought on by his alcoholism, and it's not me saying this. It is the former dean of the Harvard Medical School, the former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, four of the most esteemed doctors in America went over with me these records, and they said that's really what was happening to him. He was killing himself with alcohol, and he ultimately did kill himself with alcohol.
3: But what about his, his public fall? Um, how did, how did that happen? Was it, what is, was it his own behavior? And, and where I'm trying to go with this is there are a lot of people who are very critical of, uh, of President Trump for a lot of the same reasons that, that he's a, a, a bully and a narcissist and, um, you know, he's, uh, only in things for how, uh, how they play for him to, or to his advantage and, um, so it's it's important to note um that demagogues usually bring themselves down so he
4: did exactly what you're saying in the beginning of 1954 or actually at the end of 1953 he took on an enemy that i think was too big to bully he had bullied the state department he had bullied the voice of america He had bullied the government printing office, going after alleged communists in all three places. But those agencies didn't have a whole lot of friends. The public didn't much care about any of them. In 1953, in the fall of 1953, he started hearings where he was pointing fingers at the Army and saying that at a critical um, command and control base at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, that there were nests of communist moles there. And that was just too much for the Army, and it was too much for our Commander-in-Chief, President Eisenhower. Eisenhower let him get away with a lot of things before that, but at the point that he went after the armed services, everybody developed a backbone. The Senate decided that they were going to investigate. They held a series of very famous hearings called the Army-McCarthy hearings. And at those hearings, McCarthy started those hearings with an exactly 50% popularity rating. And at those hearings, the public got to watch him over a period of time trying to attack the distinguished generals with all of their medals. And instead of seeing a hero up there representing the public, the public saw a bully attacking this venerated and mighty institution of the U.S. Army. Over the course of those hearings, the public became very distressed. And a lawyer for the Army captured that distress when he asked McCarthy at one point in the middle of the hearings when McCarthy was attacking his young associate, this lawyer named Joe Welch stood up and said, Have you no sense of decency, sir? And that was a question that all of America seemed ready to ask by that point, watching this town bully for all of those months. By the end of the hearings, his popularity numbers had plummeted from 50% to 34%, and by the end of those hearings, for Joe McCarthy,
3: and and that uh, that quote from Joe Welch is um, has become a very famous quote. Is is it because it was so passionately delivered, or because it dealt such a devastating blow? Was it a turning point?
4: So it was a huge turning point. But while it was passionately delivered, Joe Welch was an extraordinary performer, and I think and I have evidence to think that Joe Welch was waiting for the perfect time to deliver that line, and it happened that it was the attack against his young associate. But McCarthy was so outrageous that there were ten other times that it could have happened. And like any good stage actor, uh, Joe Welch waited for the right (laughs) moment. By the time he delivered it, it was irrefutable that Joe McCarthy had no decency, and the only person in that room when he delivered that line and maybe the only person in all of America who didn't understand quite how devastating it was was one Joseph R McCarthy
3: well the book is uh it's it's an incredible work Larry like all of your books but uh this one seems to be a particular uh labor of love is is it because other work that you've done has uh unearthed uh paths to this book
4: so it's for that reason for some crazy reason every book that i write and this is my eighth is about 10 percent more fun than the last one and this (laughs) one was interesting because it seemed to be resonant it seemed to be not just about something that had happened 70 years ago but about lessons that we've got to understand for our own lives today
3: are we witnessing the same sort of uh meltdown with uh with President Trump in the wake of the um, uh, Black Lives Matter movement and and his handling of the uh, coronavirus pandemic?
4: So I just wrote an op-ed that appeared in today's Chicago Tribune asking that very question. Are we witnessing not just Trump borrowing the McCarthy playbook in rising to power and governing, but are we witnessing Donald Trump failing to understand the lessons of what led to Joe McCarthy's downfall? And who knows the answer? If we get back um, with one another after November, we'll know that answer. But I think in Trump's recent attacks, um, recent the offense to the U.S. military when he got into a tiff with his generals over that. Uh, parting of the ways in the park across from the White House when he went to have that photo op after the early demonstrations, Trump's military stood up and said, it was wrong, you were manipulating us, and it sure as heck looked like Joe McCarthy revisited.
3: Well, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by this book, and, and Larry, like always, when, whenever I get a chance to talk to you, I feel like we could talk about this stuff for hours, and uh, I, ca- I can't believe how fast the time has gone, but I, I very much appreciate uh, the time that you've spent, and as always, I give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about, about what we've been talking about. Um, but also your, your past work and, um, and your ongoing projects. Um, do you have a website, Larry?
4: I do. So my website is just my name, which is L-A-R-R-Y-T as in Tom, Y-E. My name is OneWord.com, and I'm now working on a book that is my reward to myself and my publisher's reward to me for spending three years with Joe McCarthy. <laughs> and the new book is called The Jazzmen, J-A-Z-Z-M-E-N, How Duke Ellington satchmo armstrong and count basie transformed america and it sure is fun to be with three guys like duke satchmo and the count
3: oh i he bet. spent
4: all that time with joe mccarthy
3: well you're going to have to come back and and talk about that because uh they are among my favorites but you, you know having been a professional musician um you know there's there's about a hundred people in my top 10 so Um, Okay. (laughs) Tom, I
4: appreciate it, and I'll come back anytime.
3: Well, thanks, Larry. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Larry Tai. He is uh, an award-winning journalist and a best-selling author. He's written books like Bobby Kennedy, Satchel, Superman, uh, The Father of Spin, Homelands, Rising from the Rails, and he co-authored Shock with Kitty Dukakis. His new book is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And uh, we've got uh, a musical guest. Kim Streby, will be with us right after a short break. And, uh, and then we've got lots more, so stay tuned.
1: Hi, I'm Alexander Zodzik. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.